Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Ursula King from the Universities of Bristol and London will show how interfaith dialogue, religious feminism and contemporary gender thinking can all gain from giving space and attention to their different dialogues. Thank you for welcoming me here at the University of Bath. I'm absolutely delighted to have been invited to give one of these public Gulp lectures. And I've chosen a topic which is close to my heart, but which also perhaps uh, uh, is of great interest to some students and staff and to the work of the chaplaincy here. I've been involved in interface dialogue for many years, particularly uh, since I lived in Delhi, New Delhi, for five years between 1965 to 1970. And I was actually very active in the first interface group that was set up in the Diocese of Delhi after the Second Vatican Council. And of course, I met many Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs, Jains in India, as well as Christians, of course. So it was a very stimulating time for me. And I work on interface dialogue uh, a great deal academically, but I go to conferences and meetings and international meetings. And my particular interest is in the participation of women. And you gather this probably from the title, Listening to Women's Voices. Now, you will detect when I speak that I have a few critical things to say on this matter. Um, namely on the absence of women's voices in interface dialogue. But what I would like to stress at the beginning is the methodology. I use the metaphor of the journey, how we are journeying together, how we are on the way of journeying, and that I think is a very fruitful metaphor since quite a few women who are working on women's theology speak about journeying together, women's theological journey. We speak about women's interface journey. And I also have come across the um, expression, the journey thus far, in an international conference put up by the Lutheran World Federation some years ago, which was entitled Engendering Theological Education for both women and men, Engendering theological education. So what is important for me is how women across the world are reinterpreting their faith, their religious tradition, through dialogue with people from different faiths. And what is important to take account of is that whilst women in the past were very much defined in their roles and tasks by religion, today we are in a very exciting moment of transition where many women are now actively involved in redefining religion for themselves, which is different from being defined by religion. Now, in official interreligious dialogue, it seems not only to me but to other critics as well that it is always men who are in the forefront, whether you think to just mention some very famous participants, whether it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Pope, or the Dalai Lama. You know, you always see the men. I've got a, just a, a journal which came a few days ago about Buddhist-Christian interface dialogue. You look at the picture, there's not a single woman inside. It's always the men who are representing the official dialogue. 
Now, that seems to me to overlook that women have something very important to contribute to interface dialogue, that they are actively involved in interface dialogue at the grassroots level, and that women's dialogue is very important and that their voices should be listened to. Now, it's interesting that recently, just I think it was last week, on Channel 4 in the Dispatches program, some of you may have seen how Muslim women in Britain... um, a particular group of Muslim women in London, but also in Blackburn, try to uh, make representations to get access to their own space in the mosque. Now, that is a kind of, if you like, it's a sign which expresses how women are themselves feeling marginalized and oppressed by their own face and how they are trying to gain more center space, more participatory uh, participatory uh, representation in their own face. And this is happening to women across the world. I travel a great deal and I will speak about this. And what I want to actually speak about is first of all, briefly, the importance of interface dialogue. Then I want to give you some historical background and speak about women in interface dialogue and raise some uh, theoretical questions. And last of all, and perhaps most interestingly to you, I want to speak about the transformative praxis, giving you some examples of women being actively engaged in changing their own face in conjunction and in dialogue with others sometimes. And I take as my examples particularly women from Asia, which I know best, in which are, uh, the examples are perhaps least known in the West. Now, let us first look at the importance of interface dialogue. The interface movement is largely a 20th century phenomenon, and it started first at the initiative of several Western Christians. Very often, the precise starting point is taken to be the World Parliament of Religions, which was held in 1893 in Chicago, and whose centenary was celebrated in 1993 in the same town, and which finished with the important declaration of a global ethic to try and work out some common ethical standards that we can discern or share in the different faiths. What is the common ground rather than the common core essence of religion? How can we work together? So this is very, very important. Another important influence on the interface movement internationally was the International Missionary Conference in Edinburgh in 1910. And as you know, during the century, during the 20th century and since uh, the early 20th century, many interface organizations have come into being. You have in Britain the famous World Congress in Faith, founded in 1936 by Sir Francis Young Husband and having several uh, branches in other countries. But more recently than that, we have had influential dialogue, interface dialogue initiatives, both from the World Council of Churches as well as from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, at an academic level, you have the development of what is called a theology of religions, a Christian venture, again, trying to reflect about what this encounter of different people from different cultural and religious backgrounds may mean theologically. And there, 
you have many interesting um, publications, which I shall not mention here. But what is quite striking is that most writers on interface dialogue do not mention women or do not reflect on gender as a variable that may make a difference to dialogue. So that you have really, you could say that interface dialogue as a praxis is still very deeply embedded in patriarchal and and androcentric ways of thinking and doing. Uh, There are a few exceptions, such as, for example, the Sri Lankan Wesley Ariaraja, who used to work at the World House of Churches, who has singled out women in dialogue as one of several issues that need urgently addressing in contemporary interface relations, because the women are so often absent. And it's important to realize that uh, women's own coming into consciousness of their own situation, what we call the feminist movement, but it's a term that is not always easily accepted, but the feminist movement as a movement for women, but not exclusively of women. You can have both men and women who have this consciousness that women's position needs to be changed and women's um, women have to be far more involved. So that we can say that feminist thought and critical gender areas are now exercising considerable influence across religious boundaries, challenging uh, traditional religions. Many Christian women don't like the word feminism or feminist theology because they feel it may be too combative, too aggressive. So you get a number of Christian groups, particularly in uh, outside Europe, who speak about women doing theology rather than feminist theology. But what is important is that we need to look at what women are contributing. And you could say that the feminist critique of traditional patterns of religion has probably progressed most in Judaism and Christianity. But what I want to stress here today is that it's not only happening in Christianity and Judaism, it is now happened to women, happening to women in all the other faiths, whether you think of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Sikhism, Chinese religions, Japanese religions, African religions. And it is really mind boggling when you really start to examine this, as I have done when I collated all the contributions on gender and religion for the Encyclopedia of Religion. For example, I was asked, could we have perhaps articles on 10 different religions and about the women in 10 different religions? And when we started looking around, you know, 10 religions, that's not enough for the globe. We finished up with 20 major religious traditions, you know, and that includes such aspects as African religions, but also African-American religions or Celtic religions or Mediterranean religions or South American religions or Mesoamerican religions. And what was absolutely astounding was that how much research, writing, activities have occurred since the 1970s and 1980s. You can look up all these articles there all put together under one heading, gender and religion. It's what the Americans call a composite entry, and it is 125 pages long in an encyclopedia this big. It's the longest article and new entry in that encyclopedia, which was first 
published in 1987 without a single, well, not without a single, but with very little attention paid to women and religion. They had just one article on women's studies and religion, but nothing else. And now you have this huge entry with all the activities that are being reported on, which is just really, as I said, mind-boggling. So from a dialogue point of view, we know that today it's very, very important to practice dialogue, to listen to the voice of the other, to understand what other cultures and faiths are about and how we can relate to each other and learn from each other. Now, that's quite a new development in human history. It's a transformation of human consciousness, which is quite a major change, what people call a paradigm shift. But what I would like to also underline is that the global situation is one thing, but it has to be realized and practiced very much at the local level and at the regional level. What is happening here now in Bath or in Bristol or in England or in Europe and then, you know, in Africa or in South America or in Australia or in India and so on. But what is important from a theological and spiritual point of view is to ask not only what's actually happening, what is all this activity about, what are the publications, what are the meetings. No, we also have to ask what is the religious and spiritual significance of this dialogue? You know, will it change our way of living, understanding, practicing, and experiencing our faith, if we have a faith? Or will it have an impact on secular society or on politics and so on? So there is certainly a great transformation at work. And we have to really study this growth of interface dialogue. Yet when we look at it, at the rich flowering of this dialogue, we have to ask, is this global ecumenism that one can observe, is it not still too narrow? Is it still too blinkered in its approach if it does not take into account enough sufficiently what women can contribute. Now, I could give you many proofs, whether it's books or, as I showed you, a picture or um, experiences that I've had, that there is still a very strong patriarchal context to interface dialogue. And you have to look at the photos to see this. And one has to ask, you know, why are the photographs of meetings of religious leaders in Assisi some years ago, or those of any other official dialogue meeting, so one-sidedly male-dominated and male-oriented, even when they are interdenominational and interreligious, can these religious leaders today still legitimately voice the concerns of women and speak on their behalf, as if women could not speak for themselves? Now, I look at a lot of textbooks and I'm always, always surprised how little gender and religion plays a role. Although this is now changing quite considerably, but also perhaps still too slowly. For example, there is a new Open University textbook on introducing religions, A217, where we have the photograph of 
Mother Sarah in the introduction, uh, that set of textbooks that looks at uh, that course looks at six different religions. Now there is a very strong gender awareness in that course, and there is really an attempt to bring in also pictorially as well as descriptively what the women are doing, whether it's in Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Sikhism, Islam, and so on. So things are changing, and it's important to be aware of that. Now let me come to some historical and uh, other theoretical comments. I think theoretically one can say that there are no persons in this world who are not gendered. And one has to ask, and that may be difficult for you if you're not familiar with this discussion, but one has to ask whether the experience of interface dialogue is perhaps different for women than it is for men, and how this difference might express itself. What is important is that the challenge of feminism to interreligious dialogue is one of women's lack of equal representation and of the specific contribution of women's own voices. Women seem to still remain marginalized or very often completely invisible. And it is truly spokesmen rather than spokespeople, either men or women, who largely talk about dialogue. Now, I can remember a very embarrassing occasion. It was actually in India. This was an interreligious dialogue conference, and it was a very large conference. And we were asked to sign up to go and visit uh, religious groups, to visit particular parishes or godvaras or temples or whatever. And one of these, I will not mention the uh, denomination or anything, because that goes too close to the boat. But it so happened that for one visit, only an American sister and myself signed up. So there was a big bus to take a whole group of people to this particular um, group. And they were all turned out in full force. And we were received by six or seven men. And you should have seen their faces when only two women came out of the bus. It was embarrassing, really embarrassing. There were only two women who were interested in them. They were not interested in the women. So this, these are the kind of experiences I've had. I can think of another one where we had a dialogue on meditation and spirituality. And there were two distinguished religion scholars who had this public dialogue at an international conference. And the women members at this conference suggested, could we not have one of the women, who was a sister actually, who led an Indian sister, who led meditation groups in the morning and who was so wonderful, could she not participate in this dialogue with the two men? And one of the men said, yes, that's no problem. But the other man said, no way. We are having this dialogue and this woman doesn't have to be on the platform with us. Uh, and I found this really deeply shocking. This is just, a, you know, just showing you how difficult and painful some of these experiences can be. The challenge of gender is a challenge of otherness in a different guise. And it is probably the most difficult challenge to accept for men in positions of religious leadership. To accept another faith is already 
problematic sometimes, but this other face is usually at least encountered through another man. So that in interreligious dialogue, woman is again doubly other. She's of another face and she's of a different gender, except where women of face dialogue with each other. So that's one of the difficulty difficulties. Now, historically speaking, I already mentioned at the beginning, interface dialogue started at the Chicago World's Parliament of Religions in 1893 and has been a very important um, historical um, beginning. Now, the problem with with that parliament was that it was conceived within the context of the colonial setting of what was called the Columbian Exposition, celebrating the arrival of Columbus in America uh, 500 years earlier. Um, The contributions of women to the World Fair, there was a big World Fair, has been researched in general terms, but much less is known about the women's contribution to the World Parliament of Religions. Rediscovering their voices can show us how women participated in dialogue within a secular context right from the start. And this is not even fully acknowledged in the historiography. Uh, Of the 19... Of the over 200, almost 200 plenary speakers at that interface conference, 19 plenary speakers were women. Is that using... Yeah. Now, what is very interesting is that of those women, seven women were already ordained, largely in the Unitarian churches. And the oldest, first woman ordained was a woman called Reverend Antoinette Brown Blackwell from a Unitarian background. She had been ordained in 1853, so that in in 1893 she could speak of... 40 years in the ministry. Just imagine that. 40 years in the ministry in 1893. And she had some very interesting things to say. And the other women speakers also, they they felt that there was a great deal of women's work to do. Blackwell Brown said that women's work was indispensable to the religious evolution of the human race. And there was a really strong emphasis on the contribution women can make and must make in the area of religion. Now, much has been written on dialogue since, and much more has, of course, happened since then. And um, we are in the Christian um, global community, it was particularly important that the World Council of Churches created in 1988 to 98 at the suggestion of an African Methodist male bishop, an ecumenical decade of churches in solidarity with women. When a lot of dialogue took place and a lot of things were happening, largely in the non-Western world among Christian groups, but it was a very important Again, a very important happening. But following that, at the 1993 centenary of um, the Chicago World Parliament of Religions, an interface group of women from diff- drawn from different religions got together and put forward a petition that we should have a decade of 
not the churches only, but of religions in solidarity of women, religions in solidarity of women. Of course, this did not happen. Nothing was done. Now, you know, since that Chicago meeting in 1993, there have been... um, several other world parliaments of religion, the most recent one in 2004 in Barcelona. Now, the problem continues to uh, raise its head, so to speak. There was again an interface group. I was not part of this. I was part of the 1993 one, but I wasn't at Barcelona because I was somewhere else at the time. In 2004, a group got together, not exclusively of women, also some Muslim men were in it, several people from different religions, sent a recommendation to the Council to the Parliament of Religions, a petition on the inclusion of women's voices. And I'll read you just a few things from that. The focus, this is from their petition, the focus of the Parliament agenda should include the gender inequality in the world religious and spiritual traditions. Equal numbers of women and men should be present on all programs. There are gender issues embedded in every topic. Women's experiences often differ from mainstream interpretations. This should be consistently reflected in the presentations. Scholars of women in religion and feminist scholars should be included in every program. The interpretation of religious and spiritual texts from the perspective of women's and children's human rights should be given priority. There are a number of other um, demands or, or suggestions that women should be members of the parliament's governing bodies and so on. Nothing happened. Total silence. You know, People put it forward. Wonderful idea. And the women who were involved in doing this, they're still networking now, largely through email. I've got this from one of the women participates in this. You know, and I ask and inquire, you know, what's happening? This was in 2004. Well, the answer is nothing has been happening. You see, it's just you have to knock at the door and knock at the door and knock at the door. So, you know, you could say the same when you look at the theology of religion. There is no awareness of a gender dimension. And, of course, for many people, theology can be very, very abstract and very lifeless in that sense. But when you look at the level of practice, it is very often women who are at a local level um, very active in promoting interface relations, but they don't get much credit for it. But I could, at a theoretical level, tell you more about (coughs) the challenges that I represent that are (coughs) implied in feminist theological thinking for such fields as the theology of religions, which works with certain categories where um, women are really not included, so that particularly women doing theology in the third world, they speak about the violence of abstraction of theology, the violence of abstraction. So you can say that in the interreligious dialogue literature, it's a meta level where academics study and, and argue with each other about what interface dialogue is about, you get really uh, an epistemic violence, a violence of excluding women. This is perhaps sometimes not at all conscious, but you have to really bring these developments into the open and show them. This is, in my view, very important. 
Now let us come then to my third point, transformative praxis. How do you engender religious pluralism? How can women uh, have a greater contribution? Now the declaration toward a global ethic which was um, promulgated in 1993 at the Chicago World Parliament, which I've already mentioned. It's not written from a specifically gender-aware perspective, but at least four of its directives affirm a clear commitment, I quote, to a culture of equal rights and partnership between men and women. But most of this is interpreted in terms of male-female partners in established family relationships without integrating the new insights of feminist theory and praxis. Equal partnership between men and women requires the abolition of patriarchy, of the domination of one sex over another, and of the exploitation of women, as the Declaration explicitly recognizes. However, these goals do not exclusively apply to secular society, but must be equally realized in the realm of religion. For such transformative praxis to become an integral part of religious institutions and religious life, it's essential to listen to the voices of women of different faiths and to religious feminists from different religions. Religious authorities and institutions must give full space to an equal participation of women in all areas of religious life, and that includes the area of interface dialogue. The dynamic of feminism can and must transform interface dialogue so that it becomes truly inclusive of religious and gender diversities and fully affirms the experiences of women. It must also become ecumenical in a truly global sense by engaging seriously with religious experiences outside Western culture, especially those of the great Asian wisdom traditions. Now, I want to give you examples from Asia now about what's happening among women and how women try to do dialogue or dialogue differently or how they are thinking about these matters. First of all, I want to quote um, from a splendid study that has been done by um, a a Swedish woman theologian called Helene Egnell. She just published earlier this year in Uppsala a book called Other Voices, a study of Christian feminist approaches to the religious plurality East and West. This is really a very, very uh, comprehensive and impressive tome uh, which has taken 10 years to bring together, but where you really can feel the winds of change. It's a truly... It, it could be described as a who's who in feminist theology and interface dialogue, and it's a great resource for others. Now, I don't want to uh, in any way summarize this book here. That would take me a whole uh, different lecture. But I wanted to just bring out one example that she gives from Asian women doing dialogue, and I find this really, really very, very thrilling. Uh, and this is an example which uses the journeying methodology. And it was started by women at the Henry Martin Institute in Hyderabad, which is in the center of India, towards the south. Now, women got together uh, and made several journeys, literally journeys, 
uh, and this was a small delegation of women from different countries and faith backgrounds, and each journey focused on an area of conflict. The first journey was undertaken in 1999 and took place between women in India who met women from Canada of different faiths, Christian, Muslim, Hindus, Aboriginals, tribal women. And this journey focused on interface dialogue, but also on development work, on human rights, on Dalits, that's the former outcasts in India, and on tribal rights. The second journey was undertaken in 2002 between women in India and Kenya in Africa. And that journey focused on caste and tribal conflicts from a face perspective. The third journey in 2004 involved women from Sri Lanka and South Africa focusing in their encounter and dialogue on armed conflict and racism. Now, this project is supposed to be ongoing, and there should be another one now, but because one of the key women has actually left the project, it's a question of whether it will continue or not. But what is important is that the impetus for developing such an innovative journeying methodology came from the insight that women are absent from interface dialogue and that there is a need to create a space for women in dialogue and include women. Moreover, women's experiences in insights may provide new approaches for dealing with violence and peacemaking, and they may help to redefine interface dialogue from a more experiential rather than an intellectual perspective, which is the great danger in interface dialogue. Women's practical approach out of the experience of life is emphasized in distinction from men's more abstract and cerebral talk about dialogue. Thus, the women's journeys reflect an emphasis on religion as practiced rather than on doctrine. And they led, this journey experience led these women to five key insights, which they summarized as an acknowledgement, first, of the messiness of life. You know, it's not just as simple as just enunciating a doctrine or what is supposed to be the case, but really to find out how religion is lived and practiced the stress on building relationships, the ambiguity of religion very often, and a quest for spirituality that transcends religious boundaries, and also the insistence that religion cannot be separated from other issues in society, i.e. issues of conflict and violence and war and so on, and the insistence that women can act as peacemakers in situations of communal violence. Now, this is a very interesting example of women doing dialogue in practice without great institutional representation. Now, another example that I have, I can see we're getting into um, time problems. Another example is an extraordinary book. As you can see, I'm an academic get a great deal of nourishment out of books. And this book is by a Muslim scholar from Pakistan, a woman called Duri Ahmed, who has edited a book to which other Asian women have contributed. And this book has the brilliant title, Gendering the Spirit. Gendering the Spirit. And what does she mean by that? 
the subtitle of this book published by Z Books in 2002 is Women, Religion and the Postcolonial Response. She talks about the decolonizing of our heart and imagination, how religions have been colonized and how women have been colonized for interests of power. Now, what is very interesting is it is a kind of perspective on South Asian women in terms of narratives of women's spirituality. And the book includes examples from Hinduism, Islam in the Indian subcontinent, Christianity, largely from the Philippines, and um, I think that says Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam. Right, that's it. Now, what is so interesting is what you can see from these contributions is that women, and from Buddhism, of course, I forgot Buddhism, that there is what some author has called a silent revolution going on among women. Most people are not aware that all these things are happening. There's really a silent revolution going in. And you can see this in the way that women band together. For example, you have, in Europe, you have since 1986, 19, no, 1981, you have in Europe the what is called the European Society of Women in Theological Research, women who are really fully trained in theology, but who are not only Christian uh, women from all different denominations, but who try to include now also women from different faiths. And this has grown. They have just celebrated their 20th anniversary. Now, what is absolutely extraordinary is that completely parallel to that and totally uninfluenced by it, in 1987, a global association of Buddhist women was formed, of Buddhist nuns and lay women, and that's called Sakyadita, the Daughters of the Buddha. This was formed in Asia, in, um, in Bodhgaya. It had the... Uh, patronage of the Dalai Lama, and these women, these Buddhist women, meet for conference every two years in Asia, and they're working away like, I cannot tell you, the, it's an explosion. The amount of material that comes out of these conferences and the way people have become conscientized about women's contribution to religion is extraordinary. One of their titles is called innovative Buddhist women swimming against the stream, swimming against the stream. And what is particularly interesting for us uh, Europeans or for people from a Christian background is that what is going on is a very vital battle about full ordination. And so many things are so similar, you know, I mean, in terms of the arguments and in terms of the power politics, you know, what we had in Maui, in the movement for the ordination of women. This is a movement for the full ordination of Buddhist nuns. I mean, this gets very technical and complicated, and I won't say too much about this, but in very brief, uh, since this time of the Buddha, you have Buddhist monks and Buddhist nuns, but the Buddhist nuns were never really equal, even though Buddhist thinking and thought and practice should be equal, because the thinking is equal. But the nuns did not get the full ordination. They had the full ordination in the Mahayana tradition, which is the southern tradition, which is the northern tradition, which you have in Japan and China and Korea, Taiwan. But in the southern tradition, in the Theravada tradition, they don't have the full ordination. So they're always inferior to the monks. 
And it's very, very complex. Now, the Theravada nuns have, are fighting for full ordination. And the absolute prime examples of this is the nuns in Sri Lanka, the, the ascetics, the women ascetics in Sri Lanka. Now, the extraordinary thing that has happened since this movement started, they have been able to get the ordination back. The ordination of nuns got extinguished in the 11th century and was never re-established. But it was originally nuns from Sri Lanka who took the ordination to China. And they have now taken it back from Chinese women who have the full ordination to have the ordination in Sri Lanka. So that now, in 1994, you were not even allowed to mention the word bikuni, which is the word for fully ordained nun. But now you have over 500 of them. you know, And the women have actually... They have demonstrated, they have worked for it, they have really struggled for it. And what you can see is it's exactly the same that happened in the West. You wouldn't have had any feminist theology, you wouldn't have any ordained women if women hadn't fought for it. And that starts in the 19th century in the West. Women wanted access to full training, to learning the sacred languages, to be able to start write, to read and analyze the sacred writings, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament or the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, whatever. And this is now happening to women in Hinduism and women in Islam who were never allowed to read their own texts, you see. And what one of these Buddhist women from Tibet says, women without education are like birds without wings. They can't fly. You can't go anywhere. But this is happening right under our nose. But this is not world news. You don't have this on front of newspapers. But there is so much change of consciousness going on and women grouping together and working together that it's really quite amazing, really amazing. I had a book, another book, on Christian women in Indonesia. Same thing. They are trying to work with the Muslim population in Indonesia, which is really the majority population. Another book is called... Um, now, what is the reference? Women, women reading the Quran, women shaping Islam, reading the Quran in Indonesia, where women have access to full education, where they can become qualified to become a Muslim judge, where the society has got much further than Islam in the Middle East that we usually think of. So you have now examples from Buddhism. You have it from Christianity. In Hinduism, women have claimed the right to become ascetics, to become also sannyasinis, to become really renouncers in the way they were not allowed in the past. And this has come about through the consciousness of being a woman. So you now have women, female monastic orders in Hinduism. You have women gurus, which were not the case before. And in Islam, you see, you get discussions about... Um, what women should do, how they understand the Quran, how they understand the Hadith, how many of the traditions were not interpreted in the way that were beneficial to women, just as we had in Christianity the kind of rather misogynistic way of reading some biblical passages, or by focusing on those passages that were 
negative about women. If you highlight those, then women can't gain equality. But if you want women's equality, then you have to highlight the passages that state a much more equal position for women. Do you see? So that, that's really something which I feel is very well worth studying. And, of course, these women from Buddhism, who are doing this work in Buddhism, are in contact with some of the Muslim women who do work on the Quran, and they're in contact with some of the Christian women because, you know, many of these women in Asia is such an exciting place because you have multi-religious societies. You know, you have this very strongly in India. You have it in Indonesia. You have it in Philippines. I've just been to the Philippines about a month ago, and I was absolutely amazed about the consciousness of the women and what is going on and how much activity is going on. You see... Uh, you get also new religious movements and you get reinterpretations, you get new groups, you get new cults. But uh, you may be aware that uh, Philippines is the Asian country which has a majority of Christians through the Spanish colonialism and then you had American colonialism up to about 1948. And the country is officially predominantly Catholic, even though it's a Catholicism which I sometimes don't recognize because it's so fused with... Um, local tribal influences and indigenous influences and it has Chinese influences so you get all sorts of layers but the point is you get a lot of Christian educational institutions and what I was absolutely amazed there is a a Benedictine uh, sister who some of you may have heard of, Sister Mary John Menonson because she's an enormous activist she's a Benedictine sister who came to the West, did a doctorate in philosophy, went back to her home country and became an absolutely ardent feminist, you know, an activist who marched on the street, who became the president of the Philippine um, secular women's movement. But she also was the president of the international, there's an um, ecumenical association of third world theologians, which has a separate women's section, which goes back to 1981. That's another very interesting story, where women, Christian women, have been in dialogue um, across different cultures in the South, but they also were one of the first groups that started interface dialogue in Asia. And it is in Asia, because of this multi-religious situation, that you get such interesting ventures and developments and, and a consciousness which is very aware and very open. Now, Sister Mary John Manonson, she had founded, I don't know how many years ago, certainly more than 10, maybe 15 or 20, she has an institute on women and religion where she trains women from all over Asia, from different parts of Asia, to do an MA in women and religion or to do courses to become really aware of what women can do at all levels in their face. And she, they have a whole women's institute, another institute for the formation of religious, both men and women, trying to really push forward the agenda and making women more equal partners in uh, religious life. And I'm particularly interested in the, what you might say, the, um, the area of spirituality. Because what is interesting is we are not only today much more aware of the spiritual heritage of women in different faiths, where you have extraordinary women uh, of great enlightenment or women mystics or women saints. You get them in all the faiths. But these women were largely in the past, you might say, 
individuals who stood out in spite of the surrounding social and cultural conditions which were really not for the advancement of women. Now, today, the change is not one about individuals only. Today, we have a change which is a social movement. The change of consciousness about women and the change in terms of the participation of women in equal manner is a social movement that is of global proportions and it's something really new in human history and it will change. It will change the social organization of the planet. It must change. It cannot do but change it. And what I'm particularly interested in is that in terms of women's life in the past, in terms of demography, in terms of um, family responsibility, in terms of Uh, conceiving, producing children, bringing up children, that took most of most women's lives. And you see, in that sense, religions have traditionally legitimated imminence for women. Women's jobs are here and now. Now, women are now much more able as a group, not as an individual, because it was possible for individual women before, but as a group, to discover the realm of transcendence or the, the importance of the spiritual dimension of what they're doing through being able to participate much more actively in what is happening in the world now. And that is an extraordinary development which I think is full of promise for the whole world. And it is something that will certainly change Life. It will change the world. And um, maybe I should finish there to leave some questions because I've got a lot more to say. But I think um, it is uh, not possible to say all that much in 45 minutes or an hour. The last thing I wanted to say is that now among the women theologians in Europe, just this year, they formed another group, the Interreligious Conference of European Women Theologians, who particularly want to promote interface dialogue among the women of different faiths who are interested in meeting each other and working together. And that's, again, a development of great promise and something which is very exciting. So thank you very much. Perhaps I've given you a few ideas to uh, think about more. Thank you. Thank you.